Is your family a success? Is there even a measure for family success? We think there is, and with a 20-year track record of success, we're going to show you how to bless your family with success in your health, relationships, and finances. I'm Steve Keen. And I'm Katie Keen. And along with some awesome guests, we are going to give you our secrets to family success. Welcome to Family Success Secrets. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Family Success Secrets podcast. Today, we have a very special guest who I'm really excited to introduce to you. Becky Kakula is a motivational speaker and an advocate for inclusion everywhere. Becky received her Bachelor of Science in Marketing from Providence College, where she gained a passion for influencing change behind the scenes in the entertainment industry and with large corporations. She worked for a decade in the entertainment and news media industries, and now she works to advance disability inclusion and equality in schools and in the corporate world. She also happens to be a little person who is proud to identify as part of the disability community. She has spoken at over 300 venues, such as companies, government agencies, and schools as far away as Africa. Becky is happy to be sharing her expertise today as we strive to advance disability inclusion worldwide. Becky, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah. Very good to have you. We like to start by allowing our guests to introduce themselves, to, to give us a sense of, of, uh, of your life, uh, you know, what it is you do, and uh, who you are, what, uh, what your interests are, what, what things you're working on, uh, that type of stuff. So would, would you be able to uh, introduce yourself in that way first, please? Absolutely. I, I wish I had more of a an excuse to say that I'm not working on anything and I'm just sleeping all day every day, but uh, <laughs> especially hibernating in the cold weather. Uh, right, right. I, I, the work is too important to say that. So I will let people know it kind of is described in my introduction, but I am a person with dwarfism. That means I stand four feet tall as an adult and I'm 37 years old. So I, I have some time I've done in this world where I am really just dedicating the work that I do in my life to give back to my parents who worked really hard to give me the best life possible as they were trying to navigate what it is really meaning, what the meaning is to raise someone like me when they had never met someone like me before they got to the delivery room and had me as their child. So the great thing is, I think the biggest thing that they learned is you're not going to have all the answers and you just got to do your best. And they worked really hard to do their best and speak up if they saw things that were off. So after I was born, immediately I was sent to the NICU because I was having trouble breathing. The doctors didn't think that I was making going to make it through the night. And that was probably something it was related I guess, to the dwarfism, but also could have happened to any baby. So my parents were very nervous. What did that mean? Like, were they going to be able to keep their child? And then they were fortunate. There was someone in the delivery room who had seen a little person be delivered before. So she was able to at least tell them that I had dwarfism and I have achondroplasia, which is the most common form of dwarfism. So it's more likely if someone had seen someone with dwarfism, they had seen someone with my type of dwarfism. After a few days, they were getting the clearance to be released from the hospital, but of course, we're wanting to seek out advice from doctors, geneticists, 
anyone who could help guide them as they were figuring out what does this mean for our daughter's life? Like we can leave the hospital and no longer have that medical support, but we probably will need it a few more times. So they were sent to a hospital that has a genetic counselor who had some subject matter expertise in this area. And when they got to the hospital to check into the appointment, they were told to follow the signs that say birth defects and then hit the button in the elevator that says birth defects floor and then go down the hallway when they got off the elevator to see another sign that says birth defects. And immediately after they see that last sign, they would meet their geneticist. Well, it's a geneticist, not a, it shouldn't be called a birth defects doctor. Like, and because of those signs, they continue to lose their level of trust with the person they were about to go see. Because nobody wants to be told that their child has birth defects, even if medical terminology describes certain conditions as birth defects. Nobody needs to <laughs> hear that term, especially when you're really trying to seek out answers on how can we get the best resources possible to give our daughter the best life possible. So after that appointment, I don't even know how much they processed in that actual appointment because they were so uneasy because of all those signs they saw. They wrote a letter to the hospital and got the hospital to change those signs to genetics. Good for them. Which was awesome <laughs> because they got them to change the signs and then those people who came after me didn't have to see those signs. And I think sometimes people are hesitant to speak up if, they, if something makes them feel uncomfortable, but if it makes you feel uncomfortable, most likely it's gonna make all the people after you feel uncomfortable. Yeah, sure. So that was kind of just the beginning of them really advocating on my behalf. And six months later, they were able to get me signed up for a sleep study in Baltimore, Maryland, where there was a specialist who specialized in treating patients with dwarfism. And the only reason they were able to get an appointment was because I was able to participate in the sleep study. So if I participated in the sleep study, then we could get an appointment with it. It's like <laughs> you get this prize in addition to your participation. And when we got to the doctor's office, he had a full room of patients always had a full room of patients from all around the world because he was one of the few people who specialized in dwarfism. He came out of his office after his previous appointment. I don't even know what time my parents' appointment was, but he saw the ghostly look on my parents' face of them just really like wanting to find answers, wanting to get every piece of advice they could. So even though there was a whole waiting room of people, he pulled them into his office and said, just lay it all out there. Let me know what's on your mind. And from that point forward, sometimes we would go every six months, sometimes we'd go every year to see him. They were willing to wait eight hours or whatever it took for our appointment because of what he did that first time when we visited. Wow. Nice. That's amazing. So then, yeah, so just kind of leading off of that, after that, after they had that reassurance that I was gonna be okay, they heard testimonials and stories of other people like me doing well, they really tried to just integrate me into the community where we lived. I was very fortunate that my mom was well-respected as a school teacher in the school system where I was a part of, and people knew they had to be respectful because my mom worked in the school system and they respected her a lot. But my, we made sure that I got the accommodations I needed at an early age in school. So it didn't really feel like 
anything was different than really we often call accommodations productivity tools. It helps you feel productive. And in most cases, people with disabilities don't want to ask for way too much because then it'll make them stand out more than they already do. I had a friend who was in my class from preschool to seventh grade, and that was really instrumental to have an ally who could support me since I was the only person with dwarfism in my school district at that point in time. And it really prevented me from, I'm a little hard of hearing in my right ear, so I don't know if it was a combination of that and her sticking up for me, but I really don't remember in those early days being bullied. And I was fortunate to not remember that because I had a strong support system around me at all times. And it felt so organic. So it wasn't just like it felt forced. It was like every year when we were assigned to our classroom, it was a coincidence that we were assigned to the same class rather than like our parents probably working behind the scenes to make sure that could happen. But I think it's really important for there to at least be an ally who can be there to support you and stand up for you if others or acting hesitant. Mm -hmm. And then just kind of quick fast forward to the work that I do now. I started my work in the entertainment industry, working behind the scenes, trying to change what we see in the media because it affects how people like me and all people with disabilities are treated in society. It's a very money-driven industry. People are working very hard to please (laughs) the decision makers, even if it isn't in the best interest of the disability community and authentic storytelling isn't always of interest. It's just, how can we do this well and make a lot of money? Let's use a famous actor who doesn't have a disability, have them portray disability, and then the whole rest of the world's gonna think that that's the lived experience of someone with a disability. So it's very complicated, but I still spent uh, 10 years working in that industry in different roles. And then I decided to make the switch, work in corporate America, help companies get better because there are a lot of corporations, a lot of people who work in corporations who are parents of children with disabilities or identify as having disabilities themselves and they want a better future. And I think there's just a lot more eagerness. This is the one space where direct competitors come together and work to get better at disability inclusion. That is good how do you make the jump from from being a kid in high school to working in the entertainment and the corporate industry? Because as as an advocate, mm-hmm. I mean, there's probably not a college degree program that does that for you. You have to make something of yourself in. You have to do it yourself. How do you, how do you, how'd you do that? Yeah, I think. As I was just trying to figure out which colleges I wanted to apply to, I really just looked at those basic, I don't know, basic majors. I think now there are a lot more choices than there were back in 2001 when I was looking at colleges. So I was gravitating towards marketing because I just thought it was a really interesting major to have. And then I really enjoyed photography. So I was thinking about being a minor in photography. I just love taking pictures everywhere. But the one thing that was required for the school I chose, you had to also take fine art classes. And that wasn't really my specialty. So I kept to the marketing major, but it was a liberal arts college. So it was really just getting the foundational education that was needed to 
I guess, be a good person, but also learn along the way about how to apply some of those skills to the workforce. And then I worked really hard to have internship experiences throughout my time at college. So at first it was really personal networking. Our neighbor, family friend asked me to come intern at his fire insurance company after my first year. It was in an accounting and I knew after that I did not want to do accounting. And then I did some graphic design, similar thing. It was just someone we knew had a, a position open and I worked at iRobot. They make the robotic vacuums and, yeah. and the, the robots that go out in the wars. And it was just in marketing, just an internship through the summer. And then I decided as I got closer to my senior year when the decisions had to start being made of what's next, I really wanted to make sure I strategically planned what that internship was gonna be junior going into senior year. So I found an article, it was in the Boston Business Journal. It was the top hundred ad agencies in Boston. And I just sent my resume to all of them. Nice. Yeah. The one that responded was one called Allied. They're now called Allied Integrated Marketing. And they're the intermediary between the movie companies and the general public. So they fill advanced screenings with target audiences to get people's feedback before they do a wide release of a movie. So like the movie Happy Feet, we would try to find families in the Boston area to go see the movie Happy Feet. And then people who interned could write notes on how people reacted in case anything needed to be altered before it went to a wide release. And that also gets people talking about the movie, hopefully referring their friends to go see it once it has the wide release. So I think that's when I started really figuring out like, oh, this industry has a lot of influence on people. Mm -hmm. People weren't allowed to bring their camera phones in to the movie theater because it was an advanced screening. And if you were caught taking a photo, it would be illegal. So it was crazy to think those people who just took it so seriously, which you need to, because there was a security guard right there, but they would have to like go back to their car and then come back and see the movie without their phone. I just, I think just the way people react to that industry, they're just like, it. it's attractive, it's sexy. It's like people are drawn towards entertainment. So that's when I thought, okay, I'm gonna narrow my focus. I'm gonna still use my marketing background, but I'm gonna figure out how do I get more entertainment related opportunities. So that next fall, I was able to get an internship at the NBC affiliate in Providence where I was going to school. And I did the promotions and publicity, wrote some of the scripts for the promotional ads that the news anchors would talk about. And then that led to a movie filming in Providence that summer, what the summer that I was graduating and Peter Dinklage happened to be in the movie. They wanted me to be a stand-in. So basically I would stand in while the production was setting up the lights. And then when it was time to film, he would come and replace me, but it conflicted with my last two weeks of college. So I had to choose, <laughs> do I do this for the summer and not finish college? Uh, I think people would be pretty upset if I don't finish college after all that money we paid. But because I made that connection, I asked the casting director if I could at least help out behind the scenes. So I didn't take up that opportunity, even though it was a well-paid opportunity versus a free internship. 
I still was able to learn the ropes as an observer in casting. And then from that, I then was invited to go move out to Los Angeles. There was a talent manager who also happened to be a little person who asked me to come work for her. I have yet to meet the lady to this day. So once I got to California, it never happened. But I started laying the foundation before then with a network of people throughout the Los Angeles area. And I just took as many coffee meetings as possible. I ended up sending out 1,000 resumes when I'm 100 interviews. And every time I walked in the door, I was judged based on my appearance. It was body language. Nobody told me that they didn't want me in the room, but I could tell that I was not invited. And I didn't have it on my resume that I was a little person. I didn't think it was necessary. Mm-hmm. But uh, what ended up happening was I eventually went through some temporary placement agencies, which is a route that I really recommend to a lot of people because you can have someone advocate on your behalf and you can go show up and kick ass in that job. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then they have no reason not to hire you, but it took a few of those assignments to then uh, be hired on full-time at a talent agency in the marketing department. And then I just continued to gain experience from there. So did the temp agencies actually end up having to tell the, the businesses ahead of time that you had? I'm actually not sure if they did. Because I, sh- I feel like that's not fair that you should have to have that written down. Right. That doesn't seem to me that it should matter at all. Right. That's a good question. I've actually, I don't even know. It's very possible, but I don't, I don't know. You are so persistent and I absolutely love it because I feel like what you offer is such a gift. You're willing to continue applying a thousand applications. I mean, that's amazing. <laughs> I just love that. That's a full-time job by itself. Yeah. <laughs> I took like one day off and it was over a four month period. Wow. And you know, I, I was probably stressed that one day. I probably didn't even really have a relaxing day. Probably not in that situation. And to move all the way across the country and then not have what you were told is really significant, I guess. From someone within my own community and, and it just kind of was one of the first of many lessons, like just because someone looks like you has a similar difference than you doesn't mean they're the same type of person. Right. Yeah. Wow. That's probably doubly disappointing. Right. Yeah. The town. You have an amazing story. So, so let's catch us up today. What is it that you do today? I know you're in the advocacy role, but in, in what capacity is this a uh, family business? Uh, are you working uh, outside the home for a corporation in some capacity? Fill us in, please. Of course. So since 2012, after I left California, I ended up kind of it was a mutual decision in one of my jobs to leave. And then I decided it was time to come home and take a new direction. So this was after six and a half years of being in California. One of the first things that happened when I got home, of course, I was bummed out that things didn't work out on the West Coast. But my sister is a creative writing teacher in middle school. And she asked me if I could come speak to her students. And during that time, I also found some floppy disks. (laughs) If if some people know what those are and others may not at this point in time. And one of them had my junior statement from high school that I used to apply to colleges. 
And in there somewhere was a sentence about always wanting to be a, at least a part-time motivational speaker. So I thought, okay, I'm home now. I was dealing with my own stigma of being home after being out across the country for six and a half years. So living with my parents who I love and adore, I just was worried about being an adult with a disability living at home. But I thought, you know what, I'm going to make the best of this, find a way to rebuild. And I started going to my sister's school. Then I started going to Rotary Clubs and all these different places to share my story. Of course, it started out as free speaking. And then there came opportunities that had a budget, which was exciting to then be called a paid speaker. And one of the things that really kind of kicked off was I went to a Little People of America conference. It was a regional conference in the local Massachusetts area. And there was a parent meeting and the parents started talking about struggles that they were having with their children in the school districts. So then I stood up and said, let me go and talk to the school districts. So I started doing this two-tiered approach where I would go into the schools, talk to the administrators, tell them about the accommodations I had while in school, letting them know that this student may not want all or may want more than what I had, but here's an example of what to be prepared for. And then the second part is going to speak to the whole student body have them hear my story, ask me the hard questions. So then they're ready for that student who's gonna be new to their school. And in most cases, it's someone transitioning from elementary to middle school or middle school to high school where they knew a certain group of people, but now there's gonna be even more people that they have to know in the next school. So it's really just socially preparing people to be more inclusive. And it, the reality was even in that statement I wrote, that I was going to be a part-time speaker. So after a little bit of time, and especially being at home, <laughs> going a little stir crazy, I decided to take a job in New York where I worked for the Actors Union for three and a half years in the diversity department. But from that point forward, I was able to be public about my passion for speaking. So if speaking opportunities came up, I was able to take them. Mm -hmm. And then after I worked at the Actors Union, I was asked to work for the organization where I work now. It's a nonprofit that assists business with disability inclusion. So we work with over 250 corporations to help them get better at including people with disabilities in their workforce. And I specifically run an index that companies use to self-assess how they're doing in this space. Can you give me like a, a is there a way to encapsulate it and in, in say a minute that says, here are all the different type of disabilities that folks may have that should not be a disqualification for work in, in, in a corporation. Like, are there limitations to what you can say, uh, we, can, we can bring in people to do this and this and this and this, but if they can't do this function, then, uh, you know, is, is there a way to... So just in general, the definition of disability is a physical or mental impairment that impacts one or more of life's major activities. So okay. I think even the Americans with Disabilities Act, which came up with that definition, tries to be as broad as possible so no one's left behind. Okay, but good. I think the approach that we take as an organization is try to keep the umbrella word just like so nobody feels left behind. 
but there are apparent and non-apparent disabilities and 75% of disabilities are non-apparent. So most of them you cannot see. But then for me, you can see that I am a person with dwarfism, but there are people with dwarfism who may not identify as having a disability if you don't use an assistive device or you don't have a hearing aid or it's not apparent, you can't tell that someone has an, an additional disability, but we do require extra accommodations. And then when it comes to the neurodiverse community, there are different approaches that work, the workforce has taken to be more inclusive of people with all different types of cognitive disabilities. And I think it's really trying to meet someone where they are and figure out if there's a fit for them. Specifically, when it comes to what employers are looking for, we've noticed that STEM finance and business are the areas where they're able to fill more recently. But it doesn't mean that someone can't come up with this creative, amazing idea to then be able to contribute in a meaningful way. But another pillar of our organization is supplier diversity, where we have businesses that are 51% owned, owned and operated by someone with a disability mm -hmm. or a service-connected veteran with a disability or a veteran disability. I know it's like the different terms is whether you acquired an injury during service or whether you acquire one after, but we certify these business, small businesses who then end up hiring more people with disabilities, mm -hmm. and then they can interact as vendors to these major corporations. So I think what's really important is if someone's facing too many no's, there's still an option to find something you're passionate about and run with it. And one of the challenges is I think what we've seen is some of these businesses are owned by parents of children with people with disabilities so they can participate in these businesses. But if there's a way to get that person to feel empowered to be an owner of sorts, of course, have everyone else's support, it's a great way to go. Yeah. That brings up like a thousand questions uh, because as a former military person, now a defense contractor, um, I, I know when when companies are, are competing for contracts, if they can demonstrate that there's there, it's minority owned or service disabled veteran or small business or anything that falls outside that of just mainstream that gives them a competitive advantage, then they have a better chance of winning that contract. OK, but if you're a person who is let's say in high school or college, and you have no idea about these things, these, these types of places, you just know you're getting ready to enter the workforce. What can a person do? Where can they find the sort of resources that will give them enough information to know that they too can be competitive despite a disability? Is there such a place? I think one of the biggest challenges is the fact that disability services centers and universities aren't always in close contact with the career centers and vice versa. Okay. So employers are reaching out to the university saying, here are the roles we want to fill. We'd love to meet with your students, but they're not enough. They're not asking, are you including your students with disabilities? Because they're only in that cluster of those people who ask for accommodations for the office of academic services. 
So mm -hmm. if there could be more of a cohesive plan at the university level to make people with disabilities feel empowered and know that there are career options for them, that would bring us to a, a much better place. But I think it's important for, I try to get employers to challenge the university, say, have you submitted students with disabilities? That's what we're looking for. So we do have a program, it's called the Next Gen Mentorship Program, which is meant for college students and recent grads in the STEM finance and business fields. And they can apply to be mentored by corporate partners. And then a lot of them get internship and job opportunities after they complete the mentorship program. A lot of people stay really focused on, oh, because a nonprofit is producing this program, I, I'm just gonna say that I wanna work for a nonprofit, but it's harder for us to assist people working for a nonprofit. Like we want them to feel empowered to apply to jobs in corporate America. Mm -hmm. And I think it, what's the hardest thing is people don't see themselves in these positions. So they don't think that it's possible. And we need to have more role models that can give back and show that it's possible. And it's even getting those universities to share those stories of even alumni who have disabilities who've been able to be successful. I'm gonna make sure we connect to get the information into the description so that people who are listening can make sure they access that because that is an amazing tip for all of the listeners. Thank you. Of course. Yeah. I know you wanted to ask about the article that you read last night. I know. I, we have so many questions. We need to do like five podcasts here all month. <laughs> I know, exactly. Okay, so you just contributed to an article that was absolutely amazing. So we're shifting over kind of to the family, the family realm versus the business realm. And you contributed to how should parents teach their children to interact with people with disabilities in the community? And it was a very well-written article. And can you explain to everybody pretty much what you said in that article? It was really good. <laughs> I think there's a lot of fear when it comes to parents trying to teach their children who may not have disabilities about how to approach people with disabilities. And I remember early on in my childhood, being out at a store with my mom because she absolutely loves to shop. So she brought me everywhere. <laughs> and there were parents who would pull their children away because they didn't want them to be curious. They didn't want them to interact with me. And that was more hurtful than someone coming up to me and asking the most ridiculous question in the world. Now that I've done speaking and I tell people to ask me any question in the world, I've heard it all but it's so much better to hear someone ask a question versus a comment and they're far away and they're not interacting with you. And then they're gonna go through with thinking that comment is accurate and then educate their peers that way of like, oh, I saw someone and this is what I decided to do and it was fine. But if you go up and ask a question, what's on your mind, let me know, we can have a conversation and I can, tell you whether I prefer that or not. And it just creates a better human connection rather yeah. than isolation. And there are often times where a parent pulling their child so hard where like they then hit their head or something and you're like, that's not what I wanna see. And I've seen people staring and then they walk into a wall. It's like, focus on yourself. Yeah. 
But I, people are so curious because they're not used to seeing someone like me. There is only 30,000 people with dwarfism in the United States. And it's just rare for someone to see someone like us, but it doesn't mean that they shouldn't come up and ask a question and have a dialogue. And I think it's important for parents to help their children feel empowered. And also it's not cool when a parent points their child. I was out with my family one time, it was a holiday. So we were waiting for a table at a restaurant and I saw a mother like point to her children to be like, look over there. And that was just <laughs> not appropriate because they're the ones who are supposed to be the role models and teach them how to be more tolerant of difference. Mm. So I think what's really important is just to not worry so much about how to approach someone like me or someone with any type of difference and just have a conversation and you'll be surprised how much you have in common. I was part of this unconscious bias workshop once and they told us, go find someone in the room who looks nothing like you and then try to find three things you don't have in common. And it was a lot harder than one would think. And it depends on how specific you go because you could say, do you have siblings and then stop there. Do you have five siblings or two siblings? Like, but still it was hard. It was a challenging exercise, even if you're with someone who looks nothing like you, because we all want the same lived experience of being loved and accepted and being an equal part of society. Something you said that just really stands out to me um, in our experience as well with our children is human connection. And to remember, you know, as a as a parent and just as a human being, that every person you see is a human, just like you. And it doesn't matter what color their eyes are, what color their hair is, how tall they are, what disabilities they may have sustained, you know, or been born with, or, you know, the injuries they may have gained in war or whatever. This is a human and a beautiful person. So we all came here the same way. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So I, I really appreciate you mentioning that. I hope everyone listening understands that, you know, people want just, they just want love and respect everywhere you go. It's so true. Yeah. So you, you mentioned that only 30,000 people in the United States have dwarfism. And, and, and when I think about it, I literally think that this is the first in-depth conversation I've ever had with a person with dwarfism. Okay. I grew up in a small town and there was, there was nobody who had dwarfism there. I joined the Navy and there was nobody who had dwarfism <laughs> Well, there. you won't find us in the Navy. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, but that's kind of my point is that in, in that sense, there was even less opportunity for me to interact with somebody. Right. So I can't, I can't say with any certainty that I know anything about what it's like uh, I mean, even so much to say as, well, other than a smaller physical stature, I mean, what else might you have to deal with? What else is, is, is common when, when you were talking about being born in a hospital and the geneticist saying, well, you might expect this, this, and this, what is, what is there that you also have to deal with perhaps, or is common to deal with other than just a shorter body? That's a great question. And you'll hear, I think you'll probably hear about this a lot with all different types of disabilities. People don't want to talk as much about the medical complications that they may face growing up. And I'm, I'm an open book, so I'll talk about anything, but well, folks need to know it's that thing of, we don't want people to feel bad for us. So we don't want them to think that uh, 
we have this really hard struggle to get through even the early stages of our lives, which is the preferred time to address a lot of the medical needs. So then it's less risky than when you become an adult. So when I was really young, I had a brace to align my spine to make sure that it would stay straight. Well, uh, so that I had on probably for about a year. I had inserts in my sneakers. So I always had to find really wide sneakers so they would fit in them. Mm-hmm. Just a similar thing, align my legs and back. I had bow legs. So when I was three, I had bone taken out of both legs. And then when I was 13, I had bone taken out of my pelvis to put back in the legs to straighten them out. And then when I was 15, I lost my ability to walk and it was due to spinal cord compression. So right now I'm sitting at the same height as you guys are. It's just my arms and legs are shorter, but still all of my organs are more compact. So my spinal column was up really close, pinching my spinal cord. And it was very dangerous, detailed surgery that they removed seven pieces of my lower vertebrae. So now it's exposed lower vertebrae where the pieces were taken out. They didn't fuse. Some people, they do a fusion. And sometimes if someone were to have a surgery as an adult, that may be what they need to do. But it's, luckily I was able to gain my ability to walk again after therapy. But one of the hardest things for me during that period of time, it was 10th grade, it was October. And I had to miss 29 days of school. And my biggest fear was falling behind in any aspect of life. And having to miss so much school was scary for me because then just getting back on track track was that much harder. We tried to set up tutors to come to the house, but because I wasn't used to homeschooling, we didn't really know how to set them up properly. And sometimes they'd show up, sometimes they didn't, but that affected me having to go from honors to college preparatory classes, which is still not a a huge, like I still was able to learn and and be on track with my grade. But then luckily senior year, I was able to get back on track with honors and AP classes, but it just school was really important to me and just not falling behind. So I think that's the biggest thing, people with disabilities or anyone who may have to face surgeries or know that they may be coming up at any point in their life they're so worried about telling other people because they don't want them to think that they're not going to do a good job in their work and they're not going to continue to stay dedicated. So I think that's a big thing that just comes up with the community. We don't know. There are some people I know who have the same type of dwarfism as I do, and they've never had a surgery, but they may have some challenges that they face now that they're prolonging any type of surgery until it gets really bad because sometimes as you get older, the risk factor increases. Okay. Yeah. Wow. wow. Thank you for sharing that. Well, that was a lot that obviously I didn't know. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you for educating me on that. Yeah, uh, so we look I, he- healthy and all together, but sometimes our, our pieces fall apart too. <laughs> well, right, and, and, and it just drives home the, the need for people to understand that you've got something that is outwardly different. Okay, folks, you can see that, but wow, the other stuff that's going on on the inside, the things that you have to think about or uh, 
figure out accommodations for, or the, the, the medical stuff, which might be down the road if you're not experiencing now, that's kind of scary that maybe hangs over you or the other complicating factors that are hanging over a person uh, with any disability. Right. You know, is in a sense, it's it's kind of crushing. Right. And then to go back to what you were saying in your article and then you have people that are like, well, don't look at that person. Right. What the heck is wrong with you? Right. <laughs> and and why can't you come up and, and learn something and yeah. have something meaningful and engaging there? It's it. it I, I guess it's kind of getting me fired up here. <laughs> right? I remember, so right before my back surgery, there were rumors going around town that one of the risks of the surgery was death because if they came really close to my spinal cord like yeah. and something happened like it could have gone wrong mm-hmm. so kids around my age 15 16 that's kind of what they process so they started being fearful similar to probably when a kid is approaching someone who has some type of cancer they're probably afraid of saying anything that would be offensive or don't know how to say like goodbye to someone because you don't know are they going to be here for three years or three days or what it may be so I was in that position where there was someone who I had a crush on at the time and I was like definitely wanting him we had like a going away party just before my surgery and I like wanted to have a conversation with him but he was like fearful like he told other people he was fearful because he didn't know what to say and it was just like it broke my heart that people were afraid to talk to me at that point in time because they didn't know what to say because they were worried about what was going to happen. And I just remember being in such a vulnerable position because it's like this party they put together for me just to wish me well wishes on the surgery. And I'm like, but nobody even wants to talk to me. That is hard. Communities and people really miss out when they are too afraid to engage and embrace the differences that other people are experiencing. Uh we've we've felt that inside of our own family as well we've seen um, some who absolutely are willing to accept the love of our disabled son and others who are just too afraid to even engage at all we know for sure the ones who won't engage they're missing out he Uh has so much to offer and so much pure love to give so i hope everyone will be encouraged to know that you know don't let your fear or your lack of knowledge, stop you. Go respectfully, lovingly, go ask, go find out, remove the fear, you know, accept the love and make the connection. And um, it's just so worth it. (laughs) I agree. Yeah. So you've had so many amazing experiences and lived through so many things that, you know, a lot of people may not be able to identify with. And from that, you have learned incredible stuff that you're able to share with people. Do you have anything specific that you might consider to be like a system that helped you in some way um, through the hardships or your life that you would want to share with other families? Absolutely. So when it comes to the family side, I would say even with all of the surgeries that I went through, my parents intentionally worked to make sure my sister, who's three and a half years older than I am, who does not have a disability, was feeling encouraged to be on the journey with us and support me. And they wanted to make sure that we had a really good relationship. I think sometimes families have to spend so much time with the medical attention where they forget to give the other children the love and support they need. 
So to this day, my parents, even both of us, late 30 adults, they work hard to make sure that we both feel the equal amount of love from them, regardless of the different experiences that we've had. And it just led to us becoming that much closer as adults. And I think it's just really important to know. And, and I think just society in general, when we're talking to the world, we do a lot of this diversity and inclusion work, but we need to make sure that people who may not identify as any of those demographics that we're advocating on behalf of also feel heard and seen. That's awesome. You have amazing parents. I really love them and I've never met them yet. <laughs> Someday. Yes. Make it happen. I know. But they didn't uh they didn't light your lighten your chore load at the house or anything like that, did they? <laughs> no. no Good for that. <laughs> I think it's funny because my best friend in college who also does not have dwarfism would be hard on me and really have me do whatever she was doing unless mm -hmm. like it was something way too extreme. But she had expectations of me. And one day we were walking home from the grocery store with all these bags and she's telling me to hurry up and someone on the street is driving by and they're like, she's trying the best she can. <laughs> and I know she always did it out of love. So I think it was important for them to have the same accountability measure as they did with my sister. But if there were certain moments where things had to be adjusted, they would do that. But I think it was important. Like if I made a mess, I should clean up my own mess. Excellent. Yeah, well done. Yep. <laughs> That's something that we were trained also at the Neurodevelopmental Institute that we went to, which we were already doing, but we were really reinforced that kids with disabilities, they know that you're treating them different. You better not, because there can be a lot of problems from that. Kids right. want to be their kids regardless, and they want to be treated fairly, just like their siblings and like everybody else. And so our son, for example, who has disabilities and cannot do most things independently still has chores. And we just facilitate and do them with him. And he's okay. very proud, even though we have to help him move his hands to make his bed gently. He loves doing it. We help him open the curtains. And he goes over to them and waits and, and tries to do it himself, you know, but he's so proud of having that job. So that. that's awesome. Yeah, it's really important. So yeah. That's cool. So same sort of question, but from from your professional expertise, what is what is something that you could uh, share with with our families in the audience that would that would help them? Uh, any sort of system that that you have figured out. Yeah, I would th say if there are any families where the parents work in corporate America, try to encourage your colleagues to put it out there that they're willing to make an accommodation so the person with the disability doesn't have to ask for it without seeing it as an option. Mm -hmm. So really keep that open communication so you're not creating barriers for people with disabilities who may want to work at your company or be a customer at your company. And then hopefully that will lead to more opportunities for your children to seamlessly enter the workforce. Yeah. I see. I see. I love that. So like, I, I don't hold any sort of position of leadership within the company that I work for, but if I were to advocate as average guy, right? I have a disabled kid, but different story. I'm not trying to get him hired. <laughs> so, but if I were to say, Hey, you know, we're trying to hire, we've got seven spots open. Have we considered making sure that these 
what, comply with ADA? Or do we need to hit something that's even more targeted to say that these, these jobs are, are the type of jobs that, that anybody who could access a computer well can perform? Yeah, I think it's important to look at the job description. Sometimes I always use the example of it says must lift a 50 pound box, but does someone really need to lift a 50 pound box or can one person somewhere else do it once in a great while? So really evaluate to make sure there aren't those barriers in the job descriptions. And then I guess from the entertainment point of things as a consumer, even if you're not in a hiring position, make sure that you go and support film and TV shows that have people with disabilities actually playing the roles of people with disabilities. If we can get those box office numbers up, hopefully we can see more content like that. Mm -hmm. That's a great tip. That is brilliant. And that's something every single family or person out there can do. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. All right, cool. Very good. Um, We, at this point, wrapping up our conversation, always want to know where can folks find you? So either, you know, like if you got a Facebook page, if, if you have a website for your business consulting, motivational speaking, any of those types of things. So beckymotivates.com and then you can find all those links there. Oh, that's easy. All right. Beckymotivates.com. We'll have that in the show description so that everybody can find that. Uh, and that'll be good. Man, this has been tremendous. I've learned a lot. I think everyone in the audience will mm-hmm. agree that they have as well. And to be sure, I think there's more out there uh, that, that we can discover. So we'll yeah. have to do this again sometime. We're going to have you back, Becky. This has been so <laughs> much fun. In. Yeah, awesome. indeed. All right, cool. Very good. Yeah. Thank you so much for being with us, Becky, and sharing all this time. And we'll be back again. All right. Sounds Sounds good. good. Take care, guys. All right. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening and spending time with us today. If you know anyone who could benefit from this podcast, we would be honored if you would share it. Please rate, review, subscribe, and download. Head over to podcast.familysuccesssecrets.com to have a top-rated family success secret sent straight to your inbox. We look forward to spending time with you again next week during our next episode. See you then. Bye, everyone.